This is American History TV's Lectures in History podcast. This week, a class on the culture of Congress in the antebellum era, taught by Professor Thomas Belsersky of Eastern Connecticut State University. This episode was recorded in 2015. All right, well, welcome, everybody. Uh, it's me, your professor, Thomas Belsersky, and I'm really excited to offer you a lecture today on the political culture of the antebellum Congress. Um, the outline for today's lecture is we're first going to start with a review of the first and second party systems. And then I'm going to introduce a concept, a new concept to you, and that's the idea of political culture. And I will compare that concept to something we've encountered before, political parties. And then finally, the bulk of the lecture is going to be presenting evidence, new evidence in fact, some drawn from my own research and from those of other scholars in the area, on the antebellum political culture. And as you'll see, I have three major areas of evidence to talk about today. One, tobacco culture. Two, political friendships. And three, affairs of honor. And we'll conclude there after getting through that evidence. All right. So like we often do in the class, I'm going to start today with an image on the screen, and I'm going to ask you to tell me what you see. This is Lady Washington's reception from 1861. Take it in. Who can point out something that you, you see right away? It strikes you. There we go. Yeah. Sarah. Lady Washington is on a platform. Yeah. Like, uh, how high do you think she is, maybe? Off the ground? Like, I don't know. A foot. It's a good foot. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Good. That's a good piece there. What else do you see? Oh, another one down there. Thank you. Oh, um, everyone's dressed up super fancy. Yeah, like you are today, right? Everyone's just <laughs> dressing up the same way. No, exactly. It's very fancy. The ladies are wearing gowns. Good. How about a third thing? What else do you see? Go ahead, Jimmy. It looks like they're all fairly close together. Like they, I, I can't tell they might be dancing or I don't know, but they're all very close together. Exactly. Very good. Okay, that's good. Yeah, now I should say about Lady Washington's reception that Lady Washington herself is standing literally center stage in an elegant gown. What you might not have noticed was that there is someone else who we sometimes think of as important, sort of receding into the background here. And that's good old George. George Washington here in the center in black formal Republican gown, sort of overshadowed by Lady Washington. Now, the title was Lady Washington's Reception. The word used at the time was that of a levee, which was a formal reception that was held and hosted by the First Lady, Martha Washington. Uh, many of you noticed how she was standing on a platform. That's right. And you also noticed the opulent attire. Frankly, this is a scene that could have taken place in a European court as much as it might have taken place in America. The next image, however, I think you'll find maybe a little more familiar. This is county election from 1851. Now, what do you see here, and how does it differ from that last image? Got a hand down here. Just pass it down if you will. Thank you. Go ahead, Zachariah. Um, well, I see a drunk guy in the top left of the picture. <laughs> oh, drunk people. Very good. Yeah, there's actually more than one drunk guy. We yeah. got, oh, this guy here. We got someone who had a little too much here. Good. Yeah. Um, stump speaking. Yeah, we talked about this. Good. Yeah, you remember stump speaking. The whole, yes, me, vote for me for president. Excellent. Good. Anything else you see? Oh, there's a hand back there. It's uh, primarily working class people. Yeah, Not exactly. uh, the wealthy. Good. And that, that's all good. You're, you're, you're seeing a diversity of people. Now, one thing you're also seeing, though, is the white male electorate. This is going to stand in for democracy in this period, the Jacksonian period, the one we're going to look at today to start. But also, even though it is the white male electorate, it is a diverse scene. It's the whole town. There are people of all kinds. No, indeed, the African-American to the, to the left of the picture. Of course, children as well. Um, although... It would be the white male voter for many, many years uh, who would be the voter in America. Nevertheless, political culture encompasses all people, encompasses men and women, encompasses whites and African-Americans alike. And it is not so much a question of whether one can participate in the vote, 
but whether one can participate more broadly in politics. Now, when we think back to the first party system, when we think back to the people who stood in as the politicians of the early day, two people come to mind. From the Federalist Party, Alexander Hamilton, Mr. $10 Bill, right? And from the Democratic Republicans, the, op the opposition party to the Federalists, we have Thomas Jefferson. Now, these two men could not have been more stark opposites politically. Recall that the Federalists stood for a strong constitution, a strong federal government, a strong financial and manufacturing base, and as we say, Hamilton was their leader. Versus those Democratic Republicans, or just Republicans for short, who were wary of centralized government, who were wary of encroachments upon personal liberties, and who promoted farming and commerce among small villages and towns instead of large cities and manufacturing. And Jefferson, the enlightened figure uh, of the Democratic Republicans, was their leader. Now that's the first party system. It's so called because of what follows. Indeed, the first party system was an earlier moment. During the first party system, one of the key issues was the embargo. And we see from this political cartoon that uh, the embargo is spelt backwards as, oh, grab me. And so, using a little bit of creative license, the artist here is representing the embargo as a large turtle biting at the British uh, smuggler who would try to break the embargo. Now, the embargo was really a foreign policy measure. It was designed to make it so that Britain would have a hard time trading with the United States. It ultimately it was one of the policies that doomed the United States to a second war with Great Britain. Again, that's part of the first party system's history. It's about the ways in which the Federalists and the Republicans clashed, the ways in which Hamilton and his legatees and Jefferson and his successors came into office, came into power, and eventually faded from the scene. Who they, who they left the politics of the United States to were these guys, the men of the second party system, so-called because we have totally new names for the parties, and al although some of the issues change, uh, once again, these are the new leaders of American politics. On the left, you have Andrew Jackson, a Tennessee Democrat, who we've studied at some length here, and on the right, Henry Clay, a Kentucky Whig. Um, between Clay and Jackson, we get two very different views of what America should look like, and I have two political cartoons to show how, in the second party system, new issues were emerging. For example, the question of the bank. This is the second bank of the United States, and in this image we see Andrew Jackson on the left holding a cane, which he usually walked with because all of his bullet wounds from his duels, uh, trying to battle back the many-headed hydra which is a mythical creature from Greek mythology, but here it stands in for the bank. And on each of the heads of the hydra is an individual who was representing the bank. The most prominent one in the center here was Nicholas Biddle, who was the president uh, of the bank and who became a kind of uh, enemy to Jackson in this process. So this is something of a satire in a sense because Jackson... Uh, would so-called kill the bank or slay the bank issue by uh, vetoing its renewal application prior to its usual termination. And that whole political story is somewhat well known at this point. And what we know from it is that after the bank war, so to speak, formally then the Whig party coalesces. A lot of these cartoons take the Whig perspective because indeed it shows that the Whigs were actively trying to attack Jackson. So as I was doing my uh, research for this lecture, I had a hard time finding pro-Jackson cartoons. And yet we know he was the man of the people. Yet we know he was a symbol of American democracy. And so what we have left are these anti-Jackson cartoons coming out of the period of the Whigs. And in this one, the issue under consideration is executive power. At the top of the, uh, of the image, we see the phrase, born to command. Jackson here is figured as a regal figure holding a scepter. Uh, you may not be able to see all the details, but in his left hand, he's got a scroll which says the word veto. Um, this is a reference to his using the veto more than any other president in American history as a way of claiming executive power. And underneath him and under, under his feet, you'll see the Constitution of the United States as if he's trampling on it. 
And you'll also see various other improvements, called so-called internal improvements, things that the Whig Party stood for, like roads, like canals, and eventually railroad. So Jackson here is pictured as being against all of those improvements. And as a, as a Whig attack, this was very effective because if there's one thing that American politics feared, it was that of a king. Remember, the American Revolution had been fought over this very issue, fighting a monarch to replace it with the democratic system. And although Jackson himself is thought to be a kind of leader of democratic reform, let's not forget that sometimes politics is personal. All right, so I want to ask a question and see if we can knock out a few of them. Um, let's name some of the characteristics of the Democratic Party versus the Whig Party. So let's think about a few things here. Okay, yeah, Josh, what do you got, Democrat or Whig? Um, Democrats. Um, Democrats for a weak government, and they were against any um, government spending, and they were also against the tariff. Excellent. Now, what was the tariff again? As, uh, some sort of tax, right? Yeah. Yeah. Tax on? Um, goods. Goods, right, yeah. coming into the United States. Exactly. Excellent. Okay, so that's good. We got a few of them here. Let's see what I had. Yep, weak government, got that one. Uh, yep, and I put up, they're against uh, action. Let's not forget, though, Indian removal. That counts as an action, so it's a little more complicated. It's more like the actions that Jackson opposed. Spending, yep, I think we heard that one. That was Jackson's Mayville's, uh, Maysville Road veto. That refers to the veto in the image. You're seeing Jackson holding it as a, a power, and I think you mentioned anti-tariff, so you got them all. Uh, remember the tariff of abominations? That was a measure passed uh, under the John Quincy Adams presidency. It was attacked by Jackson and so-called tariff of abominations. So, yeah, th th what we see then are the Democrats are, in a lot of ways, the, they're the legacy party of the Democratic Republicans. They even have the same name, right? So that there's really a continuation between Jefferson and his policies and Jackson uh, and, and his policies. All right, now flipping the coin, Whigs. What do we know about the Whigs? Oh, go ahead, Corey. So Whigs is basically the opposite of Democrats. So they're for, they're for strong government. They're for government action in general. They're for, for government spending and they're for the tariff. Basically. <laughs> boom, boom, boom. That's good, actually. Yeah, this is an easy one to remember. The Whigs are everything the Democrats are not. So let's see. Yep, strong government, uh, especially federal government. Uh, yep, they wanted certain economic and social goals. So the Whigs are pro-bank, Jackson's anti-bank. Um, the Whigs are pro-spending, we might say, especially on transportation, particularly the so-called internal improvements, like the canal and the roads. And then the tariff. So from the Whig point of view, it was no tariff of abominations. It was a reasonable tariff. It was the kind of economic policy that the United States should enact. And much like Jackson and the Democrats are the legacy party of Jefferson and the Democratic Republicans, it can be argued that the Whigs very much secede the Federalist agenda of Alexander Hamilton. So although they are kind of remade and remixed, the, the Jackson Democrats, the Henry Clay Whigs, they're kind of the next generation of politics. And it's this party system, this is the second party system that I want to focus on. Now, in order to move us from parties to political culture, I want to introduce you this concept. It's a concept that I think will be useful for us to think about. Parties. I've broken parties into two sets of components. It's people. It's the leaders. It's the issues. It's the organization. People. And it's actions. We're talking about campaigns, platforms, elections. Parties are focused on these things. Really, a way of talking about political parties is a group of organized people taking action for a certain result. That's the role of the party. The party's role is to gain power through all these things, elections, campaigns. Now, political culture is a little different, and it can be said to be a more capacious view of politics because it includes beliefs. These are more abstract things like norms or values or attitudes. And it includes elements of power, things like symbol, symbols, meanings, and rituals. So between political parties and political culture then, 
we have a broad view of politics. And we can think about how different actors or politicians are both partisans or members of political parties and part of a political culture, which may transcend at times those parties or may be limited to those parties. So that's the idea and the concept I want to introduce. And I want to suggest that the study of political culture, which today is a growing field in history, allows us to get into some new concepts, allows us to sort of go beyond the party mold and look at what I think are some really interesting stuff from the antebellum period. Oops, I think I went to the end somehow. (laughs) So I have a few questions to consider during the remainder of the lecture. And they are as follows. First, how and why did American political culture change from the days of the early republic to the antebellum? In other words, from the days of Hamilton and Jefferson to the days of Jackson and Clay. So we want to try to trace that change. That's that's the first goal of the lecture today. And then the second one is what does this emerging political culture of the antebellum Congress reveal about wider American society. So I'm going to return to those questions at the end of the lecture, but I want to present to you now some evidence that I hope will begin to answer that question and will help you to understand how political culture operated in this period. As I mentioned, the three areas that I want to investigate today, tobacco culture, political friendships, and affairs of honor. They're interrelated. It's not to say that one couldn't uh, affect the other. Some are more important than others, as we'll see. But broadly, these are three important aspects of the political culture of the day. And when we think about it in those terms, we see that these are ways for us to understand why and how politicians came into conflict with each other in the era before the Civil War. So the first piece, tobacco culture, this draws a lot on my own research that I've done. Um, and so I've not yet published these findings, so I'm presenting them to you today with uh, an eye towards seeing what you think. Um, but there are some elements of the tobacco culture that I found really interesting. And I have a few really kind of compelling images here <laughs> on the screen. Uh, it's amazing what you can find out there. Um, Some of the elements of the tobacco culture I found include chewing tobacco, snuff, and cigars. Um, In the 19th century, I should just say right now, they had not yet quite invented the cigarette by this period. So if you were were doing tobacco, you were doing it one of these three ways. Um, It may seem a little silly, it may sound a little funny, But indeed, tobacco was one of the key ways that politicians across parties could even talk to each other. And I've found numerous instances where sharing a cigar, sharing a pinch of snuff, or sharing uh, a wad of of chewing tobacco could bridge a gap that otherwise existed between a Democrat and a Whig. I'm going to share a story with you from that. But to convince you that tobacco wasn't just uh, an everyday thing that didn't matter for politics, Let me read to you this quote from an English observer who came to the United States, who went to Washington, and who checked out the scene. He said, The habit of chewing tobacco is also prevalent in the States, nor is it, as in Great Britain and Ireland, almost entirely confined to the poorer classes. Members of the House of Representatives and of the Senate, doctors, judges, barristers, and attorneys chew tobacco almost as generally as the laboring classes in the old country. Even in a court of justice, more especially in the western states, it is no unusual thing to see judge, jury, and the gentlemen of the bar all chewing and spitting as liberally as the crew of a homeward-bound West India man. So, you have the House of Representatives, you have the Senate, you have judges. Everyone is chewing and spitting. Uh, it's incredible to think about it, that if you were sitting in the Congress in 1840, you'd be hearing the spittoon, the cling of the spittoon, as commonly as you'd be hearing the voices of politicians. 
But actually, it was the other form of tobacco that I found in the U.S. Senate was more common. And this is really kind of incredible to think about because this is really kind of a nasty habit. Uh, it's called snuff. And this is from a book from 1840 that I found called A Pinch of Snuff. Uh, and uh, here's what this, this author said. A man's character may often be judged by the manner in which he takes snuff. We detest the stealthy, miserly, ungraceful attitude in which some people feed their noses. A liberal, elegant hand may be known in this work at a distance too great for the fact it serves to be seen. Uh, and that rather unattractive person in the screen you're seeing, uh, I assume a woman, it's hard to tell, is uh, actually reaching into a little box, much like the one on the left. She's taking a pinch of this very fine pulverized tobacco and she's putting it into her nose by way of a snort. Uh, when you took a pinch of, t of uh, snuff, the first thing that would happen is you would sneeze violently as those particles were in your nostrils. And then the second thing is you'd get the hit of tobacco in your system. What, we've, what I found was that the most inveterate, the most common user of tobacco of the entire U.S. Senate was Henry Clay. <laughs> now, this is the guy who's the leader of the Whig Party, who is Mr. Anti-Jackson. And yet, Henry Clay was more known for using tobacco than perhaps any politician in the antebellum Senate. And on the right, we see William Rufus King, who was a Democrat and a Jacksonian supporter. And these two men, it turns out in 1841, had a major incident that almost led to a duel. The confrontation came when Senator King uh, asserted that the character of, of Andrew Jackson, his, his uh, president, uh, and that of his editor, Francis Blair, would, quote, compare gloriously to that of Mr. Clay. So this is King uh, making an attack on Clay by comparing him and his character to a Jacksonian supporter. Now it was then said that Mr. Clay considered this remark as placing Blair on an, equ an equality with himself and therefore pronounced it false and cowardly. Whenever you hear the word coward in 19th century America, get ready because a duel's about to happen. It's a bad word. King promptly issued a challenge to Clay, and both men went so far as to arrange for seconds. Now, in the process, Clay realized that he was a little bit overboard. It should not have merited a duel. The two men come into reconciliation. But on a personal level, they had not yet kind of apologized to each other. So this is how Clay does it. There were apparently no hard feelings after the formal apology, because in the Senate the next day, Clay approached King's desk, who was seating, seated, and in a friendly manner said, King, give us a pinch of your snuff. And the gallery who heard it burst into applause because they knew that this was Clay's way of saying, I'm sorry. And says this incident demonstrates, and there are so many more like it, political actors could rely on a common cultural practice, in this case, taking a pinch of snuff, to bind even the part, most partisan divisions. So what do you think of this example? Had you uh, heard of tobacco before? What do you think? I mean, I, I thought it was pretty incredible. <laughs> yeah, Omar. Is there any remnants of the tobacco? Um, is there any remnants of the tobacco culture today? It's a good question because, I mean, you know, we think maybe it's just Henry Clay who was snuffing. Well, what I found out, I, can't, I really cannot believe this, is that even when you walk into the Congress today in the, in the Senate gallery, there are boxes just off to the side that are filled with snuff. <coughs> and any member could take it. Because, again, with today's anti-smoking laws, you can't smoke inside a public building, but you can take snuff. <laughs> yeah, Jimmy. I, um, it's funny. I actually um, I was watching an old... Uh, some some TV, television performance of one of my favorite musicians, and in 1970, this was in 1970. It wasn't it wasn't offensive for him to tell the story about this snuff commercial from when he was a little kid, and he was like singing it on the air. And this is like you know 45 years ago, so wow. goes to show you, times have changed. Yeah, snuffing. Yeah. Okay, well we're gonna snuff that conversation, and move to political friendships. All right, maybe this will be a little more friendly of an audience now. All right, well. 
look, tobacco shows that, you know, we can get all, we can all just get along a little bit. And it also shows that if Henry Clay, who's the most Jackson hater that there is, can reconcile with the Jackson supporter over tobacco, you know, maybe there's hope for America. And indeed, political friendships were a big part of the antebellum Congress. Now, here I'm drawing on uh, both my research and a growing research field of other historians, including Rachel Sheldon, who talks about a Washington Brotherhood. Now, for Sheldon and in my own research, I find that there are key elements that define this brotherhood. Boarding houses is a big part of it, that the politicians live together. Fraternal organizations, think here like the Freemasons. If you're a Mason and you're a Democrat, and you're a Mason and you're a Whig, you're still Masons together. Taverns, because as we saw, politicians like to drink. So, you know, going to a tavern to talk over issues was a way in which they bonded. Social clubs, more formal clubs where men could gather and, and as you can see in the picture, smoke their cigars and have brandy. This was a thing of the antebellum period. And lavish parties. Washington was nothing if not a place to party. And it typically was the case that there would be balls and receptions and that the president would have balls. And this also is the case where a first lady uh, could help to arrange those parties. Smoking cigars comes up. It's one of the ways men bonded with each other and became friends and more. So what what we have here is a Washington, D.C. by the time of the Civil War period that is indeed quite advanced along this lines. That was not exactly the case when Thomas Jefferson became president. In 1800, Washington, D.C. was just getting started. This image shows the White House as it was just built in 1800. John Adams was the first president to occupy it for a few short months. Jefferson was the first president to occupy the White House uh, during his entire presidency. The Washington of 1800 was a kind of undeveloped place. There were swamps and muddy roads all over. And in the capital, there was very little to do. Not so by 1850. One of the big differences between 1800 and 1850 when it comes to the city of Washington is that it's actually a city now. This is a a kind of a familiar outline to us. There's a few things that the modern Washington, D.C. has that they didn't have yet in 1850. But I want to zoom in on this part of the map that shows us kind of the important uh, government center. And this is zooming in on the map of Washington in 1850. You know there are a few elements here that maybe are familiar to us. In the circle there, you see the president's house. That's the White House. And on the other one, you see Capitol Hill. And that's where the Capitol was, which means that, yes, indeed, the National Mall, the Smithsonian Institute, and at that time, the unfinished Washington Monument. Uh, The rest of the uh, swamp here has not yet been filled in, nor has the Tidal Basin been created. But even by 1850, you know, there was a lot going on in Washington besides the President's House, besides the Capitol. I mean, after all, look at all these other buildings that had filled in. What I want to argue is that political friendships took place in the in-between spaces, in the other buildings, and particularly in the boarding houses, in places that you wouldn't expect on the map, like right here. (coughs) Notice where that arrow is pointing. It's a small building, and it's next to a larger one. Now, this is today by Gallery Place in Washington, D.C., and it's at a place now called the Old Patent Office, part of the National Art Museum. What I was able to find as part of my research was a photo that shows this exact scene from the 1840s. And here it is. It's what was then the patent office. It wasn't yet the old patent office. In the background, the columns, and then those buildings in front. Now, in this photo, which was titled the old patent office, the point of the person looking at it might be to say, you know, what's important here is that big columnated building. That's what's important. What I'm going to argue is actually it's that building. It's the building that you don't really see because that's the Washington boarding house. That's the place where the politicians lived. And that's the place where deals got done. 
Just going to mention one example of an important boarding house pattern and group that changed the course of American history. And in fact, they lived in a boarding house on the same street, on F Street. And it's for that reason that they're called the F Street Mess. And here they are. So take them in. There are five of them. They are called a mess because the boarding house was sometimes often referred to a mess because people ate their meals there, like a, a mess hall, right? So F Street Mess, so-called because their boarding house was on F Street. You got James Mason. You got Robert Hunter. You got David Atchison. You got William Goode, and you got Andrew Butler. What do these men have in common? What do you see? Yeah, Omar. Uh, they're all Democrats. That's right. A lot of D's there. What else do they have in common, Sarah? Um, they're all Southerners. Yeah, Southerners, because Virginia, that's the South. Because Missouri, well, it's still the South. And because South Carolina, that's definitely the South, right? Southern Democrats, the party of Andrew Jackson. But what's ominously missing here from the party of Andrew Jackson are Northerners. Where are the Northerners? Why would a group of five Southern Democrats choose to go into the same boarding house together? Well, there's a lot of, a lot of uh, answers to that question, a lot of reasons. But one result is undeniable. It was this group, the F Street mess, that was more responsible than any other group of politicians for the most important piece of legislation in the antebellum Congress. And that was the Kansas-Nebraska Act. It was this group who on a cold, snowy night in January of 1854, marched over to then President Franklin Pierce's house, the White House, and demanded that Pierce support their plan to organize the new territory of Nebraska to permit slavery. And there it is. Southern Democrats have one thing in common that Northern Democrats don't. And that's an interest to expand slavery. This is ominous because this shows that the politics of the party through this political culture were becoming increasingly sectional. Now, what year was the Kansas-Nebraska Act? Do you remember? 1854. <laughs> okay, so 1854. Gave you that one. All right. What year does the Civil War start? Do you mean? That's what it ends. Oh, excuse me. 18. I don't know when it started. 1861. All right. So some basic dates we've got to remember. The Kansas-Nebraska Act is 1854. The Civil War starts 1861. Uh, that's only seven years away. That's my point here, not to quiz you on dates. It's to say, look, this change really forebodes the coming of the Civil War. So what do you think? Is a boarding house as powerful then as the Capitol or as the White House? What do you think of this example? Curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah, go ahead, Josh. I think it's more um, powerful because there's no opposing views inside the, um, the boarding house compared to like in Congress. So like you have Northerners and Southern all in one place, all battling for, for their views and stuff. But if the if Southerners all live in one house, they all have the same views and they all want to expand slavery. So that's how they got their job done. Yeah. yeah, that's really well said. The power of the domestic sphere, we might say, in politics. Yeah. Other thoughts on that? Well, remember these guys, because the F Street mess made quite a mess. And in fact, what comes out of the F Street mess, what comes out of this period is really my third category, affairs of honor. Now, here again, this is not to say that affairs of honor did not take place in the earlier period, because they did. Famously, the most important affair of honor of all, from the first party system, the duel between Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton, a few images of which you see here. 
Now, this material um, draws upon a book by Joanne Freeman called Affairs of Honor, and it's a really excellent book. Um, I look at some of the affairs of honor in the later period, and I'll, I'll end with that last example, as you'll see. But broadly speaking, affairs of honor across time had a few things in common. They were part of a culture of honor. And again, this transcends both North and South, but it becomes more of a Southern institution in time. Indeed, the culture of honor is more associated with the South, and especially by the start of the Civil War, honor is very important to those Southern politicians, like the F Street mess. It's associated with reputation. Reputation can further be categorized by different elements, but broadly speaking, it's what you were thought of. And at this time, your reputation was all you had. In some ways, I think of it today like our identity, which when we talk about identity theft, we talk about the problems that happen when our identity is stolen, right? Think of that. Think about that as an attack on reputation, as when your reputation has been besmirched or sullied or attacked. It's about gossip. It's about spreading lies and rumors, potentially of a personal nature, potentially of a political nature. It's about posting, which not too long ago, this might not have been a word you didn't know, because this book uh, that I'm thinking of was written in 2001, but now I think we all know what to post means. <laughs> Actually, it's the same thing. To post on any social media site is to put information out there. Of course, only back then, all they had were newspapers. But when they posted, that is to say, when they published pieces in newspapers, they could precipitate an affair of honor if those postings were attacking reputation. And indeed, it often went in this way. It often went gossip, then posting, and finally, dueling. Dueling. Dueling is the last stage in the cycle or in the process of the affair of honor. Dueling was a last measure. There were lots of threats of duels. We saw one earlier with Henry Clay and William King. But indeed, dueling was a last measure. It's not to say that it didn't happen, because it did, as the Burr-Hamilton duel suggests, and as countless others, perhaps some two to three hundred in total, uh, I've heard, in this period between politicians. But dueling was the end of the process, not the beginning. So I'm going to present to you three examples of affairs of honor, one from this early uh, period of Federalists and Republicans, and then the later two from the period of the second party system of Democrats and Whigs. And I wanted to start with this one, because we get to bring in our own Connecticut Senator, Roger Griswold, uh, in this case uh, from the House of Representatives. Okay, so Lyme, Connecticut, we got, we got uh, one of our own here. Uh, Roger Griswold was born in Lyme, Connecticut. He's a Connecticut politician from this period. He was a Federalist, as many Connecticut politicians were, right? And he goes to the Congress to be a congressman, and he's there from 1795 to 1805. So Matthew Lyon, I'm sorry, Roger Griswold was a long-serving Federalist congressman from Connecticut. Uh, Matthew Lyon, on the other hand, was from Vermont, and he was a supporter of Thomas Jefferson, and so he became a Republican. Well, Republicans and Federalists, as you see, as we've seen, could get along sometimes, but they also could get into big fights with each other. And what I'm going to describe is known as the Lyon-Griswold brawl with our own Griswold having a club in his hand and the Vermonter lion with a pair of fire tongs. How in the world did they get this way? It all came about an argument over politics. It was during an impeachment hearing of a particular Democratic Republic uh, officer, William Blount of Tennessee, that Griswold, Mr. Club, <laughs> Uh, was trying to attract the attention of Lyon, Mr. Tongs, in order to have a dialogue on the issue. In other words, in order to engage in the political process. But Lyon was ignoring him on purpose since they belonged to opposing political parties. And indeed, this is where the line starts to get crossed. Griswold finally lost his temper and insulted Lyon by calling him a scoundrel. That's another word, like coward, which when you say it, Everyone gets quiet. Eyes pop out. 
what will you do? It's like the dirtiest word in the affair of honor. You are saying, you, sir, are a liar. Well, it did not go too well from there. Uh, Lion uh, declared himself willing to fight for the interest of the common man, to take on Griswold. Griswold, knowing a little bit about Lion's past, asked if he would be using his wooden sword, which we think is a reference to the fact that Lion had been dismissed from the Continental Army uh, back during the Revolution and thus did not have an actual sword anymore. This is when Lion spat on Griswold's face. So now we have spit in the face. Okay, that's where it stopped there. They broke the two men up. Uh, Lyon made an apology to the house, but again, formal apology, claiming that he had not known it was in session because it was an impeachment hearing. It's a weak excuse. Uh, But that he meant no breach of decorum or disrespect to the house as a whole. Now, two weeks later, not satisfied with the apology, Griswold retaliated by bringing in the club, by attacking Lyon with with his club here, and beating him about the head and shoulders in view of the house. And this scene shows how all the congressmen were just watching on. Lion, who wasn't seriously injured, then went to a fire pit and grabbed the tongs. And that is seen <laughs> here in uh, the picture. Now, they were, they were broken up once again, and it led to a house investigation. Nothing happened. Because the Lion-Griswold brawl was okay, basically. You know, even though it took place in the House of Representatives, this is all part of a code of honor. This is all part of an acceptable conduct for gentlemen. And, of course, apologies had to be made, but the fact is it could happen, and it did. Uh, The fact that it didn't go on to become a duel is the thing that perhaps is most surprising about this, that it sort of stopped at the level of a brawl. We move ahead to 1850. We get to another one of these affairs of honor. This one, though, is getting a little bit more of a loaded gun. This one's the Foot-Benton Dispute, where we have the Mississippi Senator, Henry Foote here, who we'll now see is holding a gun. And on the right here, we have the the, uh, Missouri Senator, Thomas Hart Benton, who has his chest pulled back saying, let me at him, I have nothing to hide. And that's the scene here. This one, too, comes from words being exchanged that nearly lead to blows. Foote calls Benton a calumniator. Ooh, uh, this caused the Missourian to, as Benton, to start approaching Foote down the hall in a menacing manner. Now, Benton's a big guy, Foote not so big. Foote, who was prepared for such a response, pulled out the pistol. Um... And again, the word itself may not seem all that bad, but it's, again, one of these words that is saying, you, sir, are a liar. And these are fighting words in antebellum America. Um, When the gun was taken out by foot, you can see he was immediately called back, um, and uh, eventually the two men were wrestled away. This is sort of a false alarm, we might say. And indeed, both men were Democrats. So this doesn't quite fit into the sectional pattern that we might expect of this period when you have two Democrats, although from kind of different wings of the party, fighting it out. And there are details there to think about. But it's really the final example, the one that's most famous, perhaps the most famous affair of honor of all, that reveals what I think the breakdown of American politics. And that's the Brooks Sumner affair. In this cartoon from 1856 titled Southern Chivalry, Argument Versus Clubs, we see an unknown assailant holding a cane with his face blocked, and that's purposeful. The artist didn't know who the heck it was. Attacking a man who seems to be holding a pen and perhaps a bill in his hand. A bill says Kansas. And that man was Charles Sumner. It turns out the assailant was Preston Brooks. Brooks was a Democrat from South Carolina. Sumner, at this point, considered himself a Republican from Massachusetts, and prior to that, he had been a Whig. It all began when Charles Sumner made a speech in the U.S. Senate in which he attacked the results of the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854, and which he then went one step further. There was violence in Kansas, 
and Sumner knew this, and he wanted to point out that there should be blame placed for the passage of the act on a few men in particular. He called out Stephen Douglas of Illinois, who was a Northern Democrat, and he also called out Andrew Butler of South Carolina. Butler, remember, was a member of the F Street Ness. He was one of those powerful Southern Democrats who had forced Franklin Pierce at that time to support the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Two years later, Sumner makes a speech in which he says, and I quote, that Stephen Douglas was, quote, a noisome, squat, and nameless animal, not a proper model for an American senator. And then in in his next breath, he insulted Senator Butler. He said of Butler that he was as having taken, quote, a mistress who, though ugly to others, is always lovely to him, though polluted in the sight of the world, is chaste in his sight. I mean the harlot slavery. Oh, boy. So Charles Sumner has just issued two major insults against two U.S. senators, two men of the opposite party. Now, what this scene uh, that actually took place shows us is that uh, the violence in the U.S. Senate uh, was starting to escalate. The foot-betten dispute was broken up. But it was two days later on the afternoon of May 22nd that Preston Brooks, a congressman from South Carolina who was not a senator, who was not actually mentioned in the speech, but was a cousin in fact, a second cousin of Andrew Butler from the same town, hometown, Edgefield, South Carolina. He, along with two of his compadres, Lawrence Kett, also of South Carolina, also a Democrat, and Henry Edmondson of Virginia, a Democrat. The three of them, they cabaled, they conspired, they made a plan. And Brooks had a prepared speech. He probably had a piece of paper in front of him. He may have memorized it. Here's what he said he said. (laughs) But you you tell me if he actually said this. He walked up to Sumner, who was sitting at his desk in the Senate. The Senate was out of session. Sumner was busily writing. And he was said to have said, and I quote, Mr. Sumner, I have read your speech twice over carefully. It is a libel in South Carolina and Mr. Butler, who is a relative of mine. As the story goes, Sumner starts to get up. Brooks loses control and begins whacking him with his cane. The cane was made of gutta percha, and so it began to crack upon impact on Sumner's skull. So you see in the image some blood on his forehead. Um, Sumner, who was trapped, he was a large man, he was trapped under his Senate desk. And so as he tried to get out of it, he ripped the bolts from the floor. By the way, this Senate desk is uh, preserved by the Massachusetts Historical Society today. I've seen it. It's incredible. Um, And Brooks continued to bash Sumner until he was on the floor, bleeding and unconscious. Sumner uh, was out for the count. Brooks composed himself, walked out, took a deep breath, and went off into history. It should be noted, too, though, that Kett's role, one of Brooks' compatriots, was to keep other senators away. And you see him here wielding the cane. That was supposedly Kett's role. You see the desk, the ink that had spilled. You see people who would try to come to Sumner's aid as much as you see people laughing. People have thought that Charles Sumner's attack on Senator Butler went too far. Concerned as well as humored. When you have someone being beaten senseless on the floor of the Senate, something was fatally wrong. Now, my question to you is, you've heard the story now, to what extent was the Brooks Sumner affair about politics, and to what extent was it about personal issues, do you think? Do you make this as a political thing, or do you make this as a personal thing? Oh, go ahead, Jim. Yeah, I, I would say anytime that it gets the, it gets this heated, it's more personal than political. 
but it, it's probably a combination of both. Okay. But I would say more personal. What other things? We got one down here, is that correct? Um, I thought it was a little political because one's Democrat and one's a Republican, so they're on two opposite sides. So, and it looks like he takes the political cycle, like, a little strong. Yeah. Oh, that's a good lesson for our times. He takes it a little strongly. Excellent. Yeah. Other thoughts? Well, either way, it certainly hurt. Um, this is uh, one of the major episodes in the build-up to the Civil War. In fact, the Brooks Sumner affair is credited for giving the Republican Party strength in the election of 1856. In fact, the Republicans run on two platforms, Bleeding Kansas, which is to say the violence in Kansas they think was caused by terrible decisions by the Democrats, opening it to slavery, that is, and Bleeding Sumner. That this personal attack galvanized a political party. And so I want to offer a few conclusions for you that I think try to sum up all this and suggest how tobacco culture, boarding houses, and affairs of honor make sense as part of the story of political culture and why they're important. And I also want to return to those questions to tell you again, or try to help you understand what has changed since the days of Hamilton and Jefferson. One conclusion is this that there had been a breakdown of congressional friendships. And that breakdown is revealed in sectional divisions in national politics. That it used to be okay, so to speak, to cross those party lines, to be friends, to have those parties, to have those social clubs, to have all of those different cultural elements in common, and to smoke tobacco together, or snuff. Those friendships broke in the heated climate over sectional divisions. And of course, the most and greatest division was over the issue of slavery, not to be ignored in this moment. And I find, this is part of my research, that the boarding houses actually became more sectional and more partisan in nature. That the F Street mess, although the most powerful and the most prominent example of a sectional Southern Democrat boarding house was not alone. That politicians were beginning to sense, and especially after the Brooks Sumner affair, that they needed to band together. That for their own safety, indeed, in Washington, they knew it was best to stick with their own. This breaks down trust. This breaks down the personal bonds that the men had once shared, that the political establishment that had promoted it. And this gets to the last piece. The Burr-Hamilton duel was so infamous because, well, it was one of the few times where, an American, po- where American politicians fought and actually killed one another in a duel. The Lyon-Griswold brawl was also unusual because although it may, maybe seems comical, it, it suggested that things had gotten too far. When Henry Foote draws a pistol and points it at, at Thomas Hart Benton, no one's surprised. In fact, there was a quote that it was the only, the only way to uh, defend yourself against a pistol is to bring two pistols. When Preston Brooks beats Charles Sumner senselessly to the ground in 1856, people laughed. People said he got what he deserved. In the South, you get one story. In the North, you get another. And finally, to conclude, the political culture of the antebellum Congress had come apart at the seams. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to stop here and, and take questions and see what you think. So I want to hear from you guys. Go ahead, Josh. Okay, so I've never heard of boarding houses besides like boarding schools and like, mm-hmm. you know, all that stuff. So do they still exist in Washington, D.C.? Yeah, it's a good question. Boarding houses. I mean, who had heard, who had not heard of it before? If you could raise your hands. I'm not surprised, really. It's not a term we use very much today. It's not really in our, in our culture. Um, but in fact, there are some boarding houses today. And I actually had a, um, a bonus slide on this. So let's see if I can find it. Because <laughs> I thought someone might ask that. Um, here. Yeah, it was this one. Um, 
I found this article in New Yorker from 2010 about the so-called frat house for Jesus, uh, which I, it was incredible to me, and it really changed my whole view on what the heck was happening in Washington today. There was actually a group of congressmen in 2010 who were living together in basically a boarding house. Um, and as you can see in the image, what they all shared in common was a Christian belief. Um, these, some of these men are still in the Congress. Some have, because of scandal, had to uh, step down. But the article was talking about the so-called fellowship on C Street, and it got me thinking a lot about the F Street mess. Now, these guys are from different parties, it turns out, Democrats and Republicans. The thing that unites them is more of that religious view. So it's perhaps not as comparable uh, to, uh, you know, the boarding houses of the 1850s. But, you know, this stuff's still happening. Um, And maybe with rising rents in Washington, D.C., we'll see more of this um, as time goes on. That's a good question. Other questions? Yeah, Kate. Um, what happened to Brooks and Sumner after, like, the caning? Oh, he didn't just go home happily ever after, I'll tell you that. <laughs> um, so which one, Brooks and Sumner? Uh, yeah, both. Okay, good question. Brooks, let's see. Well, he died. <laughs> he kind of had a kind of, like, a villain's ending. He died pretty early. Uh, the caning was May. He died in January of the next year of a uh, cough, a croup. Uh, so he did not live very long. Um, Sumner actually lived a long life. Charles Sumner recovered. He went through some serious, like, 1850s medical treatments where he had uh, burns put all on his back as a kind of electroshock treatment because he was probably suffering from what we would call post-traumatic stress disorder, and at the time they didn't know what to do with that. Sumner was a big man. Uh, He lived with these wounds his whole life, and he lived until 1874. Uh, So he was a senator during the Civil War, during Reconstruction. He was from Massachusetts. uh, And he ended up writing some of the best civil rights legislation of of Reconstruction. So Charles Sumner was was down, but not not for the count. He got back up. uh, And from 1859 through 1874 until his death, he served in the the Senate. Yeah. Other questions? Zach Wright, yeah. Well, I was a little confused. You said that they still allow smoking in Congress nowadays? Uh, they allow snuffing, which sounds kind of disgusting. I'm not really sure if anyone snuffs today. Um, but, I mean, that's not, that's, yeah. Um, what, what else was I going to say about that? Oh, oh, yeah, the other thing is, I'm not going to ask if there are any smokers out there. Please don't answer that question. Um, but what I will say is that in doing my research for this, Henry Clay, you got me thinking about something. Henry Clay uh, really doesn't go away in tobacco culture. Um, I have a slide here. Yeah, this guy, Henry Clay, is all over product placement throughout American history. Uh, there's a Cuban cigar called the Henry Clay. And we see, too, that this box here uh, is probably, I'm not sure if it's a chewing tobacco box or a snuff box, probably chewing tobacco, that has the Henry Clay face on it. Um, And the other thing I found was um, Franklin Pierce gets kind of literally shafted here. He gets made into a pipe head. (laughs) So uh, during the campaign of 1852, everyone thought it'd be a great idea to put Franklin Pierce's head on a pipe and smoke it. Can I say he uh, kind of a misunderstood figure, Franklin Pierce? <laughs> Other questions? I assume that you all figured at this point that we don't duel anymore. Yeah? Or do we? <laughs> well, I just had one other thing then, because I had a few slides after ready for you. Here's one it's this. Uh, <laughs> Hey, you're on your cell phone doing the paces on the duel. So hold on. I've already lost track of my place. Sorry. It's kind of funny. But, you know, although dueling has ended, guys, uh, the rhetoric of dueling has not. And I was shocked. I remember actually watching this back in 2004. And thanks to YouTube, the joys of YouTube, I've been able to find 
this clip. And I, 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 at the time, I didn't believe that it was actually said. So this is a senator from Georgia, okay, like American politician, popular senator, Zell Miller, and Chris Matthews is an MSNBC commentator. Um, listen to this clip here, which I have queued up here. Look at this. Matthews is going to confront Miller, and it's going to get heated really quickly. If you're, you're going to ask a question... Well, that's a tough question. Gonna, it takes a few words. Get out of my face. If you're going <laughs> to ask me a question, step back and let me answer. <laughs> you know, I wish we... I wish we lived in the day where you could challenge a person to a duel. That would be pretty good. He almost couldn't keep a straight face because in the days when you could challenge a person to a duel, America was a pretty violent, nasty place. All right. Well, if there's no other questions, we're going to end there. Um, Next week we have uh, our turn to abolitionists and to reform. So make sure to check out that reading. Bring the documents with you for our discussion. Um, I'm trying to think. Yeah, if there's any other questions about the chapter quizzes, let me know over email. Otherwise, thank you for your attention. We'll see you on Tuesday. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.